Hello and welcome to the Sound on Sound podcast channel about electronic music and all things synth. I'm Rob Puricelli and in this episode I talk to David Bessel about his work in the realm of physical and acoustic modelling synthesis. For decades, synthesizer manufacturers and sound designers have strived to recreate the sounds of acoustic instruments such as brass, woodwind, strings and more. And for many years they failed. Then, in 1979, digital sampling was unleashed on an unsuspecting world and musicians were now able to sample and play back such instruments with ease. But it still wasn't perfect. Sampling recorded a single, often static performance, but lacked all the nuance of the real instruments. After decades of research in university labs around the world, physical modelling came to prominence in the 1980s and 1990s and offered a way to accurately mimic the detail and expressivity of acoustic instruments. David Bessel was inspired by this and sought to explore it further, something he still does to this day. I started off by asking him how he got into music in the first place and what prompted him to explore the world of physical and acoustic modelling. I mean, I started out playing in bands like most people did. Um, went through various bands in various styles with varying degrees of success. And in the process of that, I started working more and more in studios. So I ended up doing session work um, you know, uh, in studios, mostly guitar stuff, um, but also programming. And then as I got more into the classical side of music theory and stuff, I started to do arranging things for other people. Um, worked quite a lot with, um, uh, as an assistant, uh, programming and that kind of stuff with Ed Buller who is uh, also in Node. Um, so Node is an electronic band that I play in from time to time, like about once every 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it has uh, people in it like uh, Mel, Le- Mel Wesson, who works with Hans Zimmer, and uh, Flood, who people will probably have come across, Depeche Mode, Nick Cave, and a whole host of other people. Um, so in between doing all that, uh, I also went, uh, went and studied uh, classical orchestration at the Royal College of Music and ended up doing a PhD on the um, writing for orchestras in a manner that imitates electronics. Um, and, uh, and then after that, I, I went into a full-time academic job running music courses at the University of Bedfordshire and uh, Plymouth University. Uh, and then in the past couple of years, I bailed out of that academic world again and um, I've gone back to just making my own music for my own amusement, which I have the luxury of doing at this particular point in my career. What sparked your interest in physical modelling? Where did, where did that all start for you? Uh, well, I've always been interested in synthesis and understanding as much as I can about sound is obviously a way to becoming a more versatile synthesist. Um, and... Um, I guess without really knowing it, I always used acoustic sound as a kind of model or ideal in my mind when programming even synthetic sounds. Um, I always tried to approach the, um, the emotional impact of an acoustic sound with an electronic sound. Um, 
And in the process of doing that, I explored a whole variety of different synthesis methods, granular and uh, analog subtractive and all sorts of things like that. And I came across physical modeling, which intrigued me because firstly, it seemed very impenetrable to start with. Um, you know, it works in a quite different way from an analog synthesizer, for example, or even a um, FM synthesizer, which are supposedly more difficult to manage. Um, and so uh, when I went into the academic world, I had the time and the tools um, to do really in-depth research into that. I taught myself how to do physical modeling and then started to push the physical models, which I was building myself, uh, into areas which were more kind of suited to my own musical needs rather than off-the-shelf stuff. But when I first started it, there wasn't an awful lot of off-the-shelf stuff available. The Yamaha VL1, which nobody could afford, and was only about you know half a dozen made or whatever, you know. Uh, and so that was really the only decent commercial offering at that time. Uh, and so I was kind of forced to build my own stuff and, and learn about it myself in order to be able to use it. How do you begin to create a physical model with, without, you know, going right into the weeds? Where does one start? The weeds are the interesting bit, but <laughs> not really they are, because actually I, I think probably a lot of people sort of know a little bit about physical modelling without even realising it. Um, so there are different approaches to physical modelling, but the most common one um, is based on extensions of the Carplus Strong um, algorithm or Carplus Strong synthesis method. So that's something you can look up on YouTube. Um, it, it's a very, very crude approximation of what happens if you pluck a string. Um, and it's done by uh, just um, having a, a very, very short delay line and uh, firing a little burst of noise into it. And then the delay line will ring if you have the feedback up enough um, and decays in a way which is similar to a string. It's a very crude approximation, but that basic principle, a noise source or, or what's called in the physical modeling world an excitation, um, fired into a delay line, uh, usually the first extension you would make to a Carpus Strong, um, a basic Carpus Strong setup is to put uh, a filter in the feedback loop of the, de of the delay, and that makes the string decay more naturally. Um, otherwise, you get something a bit like a sitar, it's very twangy, uh, <clears throat> but the filter will tame that a little bit. It also introduces other problems, and then you and then you go down the rabbit hole into the weeds, as as, as you said. And um, but it basically it's basically that it's a noise source, um, uh, a short delay line with a lot of feedback and a filter in that delay line, uh, and that approach, you know, when you extend beyond Carpenter Strong, that's called waveguide synthesis, um, and that's the easiest, most approachable style of physical modeling. And is that exclusively string type sounds because of the the Carpenter Strong uh, principle? No, it's not because it turns out in the, the physics of a of a blown tube is very similar to a string, um, and um, and so if you you can do uh, woodwind, you can do brass, uh, you can do plucked um, strings, and then if you go further into the weeds, you can do um, metallic objects, wooden objects. Um, and then further and further down the rabbit hole. And so that that basic technique, if you extend it enough and understand enough about it, maybe add a second delay line, have cross-feedback networks between the delay lines, multiple filters in multiple places, uh, you can get some very sophisticated stuff. You can model just about any physical object. 
what do you use to to create your physical models? Because I understand that you do some stuff with analog equipment and then some stuff uh, with digital equipment. So, so how do you how does your process manifest? Uh, that's right. Well, when I first started doing it, it was around about the time when it became computers became fast enough to be able to do it in real time. And prior to that. Um, uh, computers uh, could make a model, but you'd have to wait half an hour for the sound to come out the other end, you know, while it, while it churned away, uh, crunching the numbers. Um, but around about the time I started it, playing with it, which was probably, I don't know, early 80s or something like that, um, computers got fast enough so you could do it in real time. So I, I started off doing it with computers. Um, I'm not uh, a terribly proficient coder, but I use Max MSP as my main tool because it was approachable as a musician, which I am basically. I'm not. I'm not particularly a coder. That was my main tool. I mean, it's not perhaps the best tool for doing it, but I found ways to do it. And then I tried porting some of those things to Reactor. Reactors handle some of the things which are more difficult to do in Max. Um, I wasn't terribly happy with the sound quality of either of those. Uh, and so eventually, I, once I understood enough about physical modeling, I began to think if it was possible to reproduce the software that I've written in analog hardware with, with a modular synth, if you had the right modules in the right configuration, you, you, can, you, know, you can get delay lines, you can get filters, you can get noise sources. And I was thinking, well, it should be possible to do it. Um, so then uh, more recently, I started uh, building a Eurorack system specifically designed to do physical modeling. Uh, I know in Eurorack, you've got things like mutable elements, which are pre-built physical models, and they're, they're digital models, you know, all contained within a, a module already built for you. And you have access to some parameters there, but you don't have the flexibility if you build the entire model from scratch yourself. And so some of the things I wanted to do musically were not accommodated by elements, for example. Um, so I, I started playing around with the analog modules and I, and I managed to, uh, I actually managed to get it to work somewhat to my own surprise. Um, and I also came, what was very helpful in that process was I came across a guy called Ron Berry. He's, he's hardly known at all, but he ought to be very well known because almost single-handedly in the early 80s, he built a modular synthesizer himself, you know, from scratch with the soldering iron um, to do physical modeling. And he's just about the only person who did it that way at that time. Um, and you can find his website. Um, I mean, he's retired now, and I'm not quite sure how old he was, how old he is, but um, I, I did manage to contact him, and, and I picked his brains quite extensively, <laughs> as you do. Um, yeah. And uh, he was very helpful, and uh, because he's sort of been there and done it himself, um, although, although he was using custom modules with the currently available Eurorack stuff, I was able to reproduce some of his ideas and um, um, solve some of the practical problems that you inevitably run into, you know, something doesn't work the way it's supposed to in theory, you know. Um, so, so my most recent interest is trying to do it in the analog world, because to me it sounds, it sounds more lively. You're using modular gear. What modules would one require? Is Are, are these the sort of basic modules, you know, a standard kind of oscillator and a, a regular kind of filter? Uh, yeah, I mean, in physical modeling, you don't use any oscillators. It's the feedback from the delay line which acts as the oscillator, or the, the equivalent of the oscillator. It's a bit like giving a spring reverb a kick. You know, you send a burst of noise into it, and if the feedback's up high enough but not quite feeding back on its own, it will ring for a certain amount of time and then die away. 
and if you put a filter in the delay loop, the high frequencies die quicker than the low frequencies, so you get a twang at the start of the string, and then it, and it becomes more mellow as it dies away, you know, if you think about the way a piano decays. Well, I use different noise sources. I tend to use pink noise. I find white, white noise a little bit too bright and aggressive for, for, for what I want. And sometimes I use the noise source off my Macbeth uh, modular, SME modular. Sometimes I use a Eurorack module. Uh, I've got a couple of Eurorack modules which can generate noise. It's not entirely critical what the noise source is. I mean, a pink noise source is a pink noise source, more or less. I do tend to find analog pink noise a little bit more sympathetic to the ears than, than digital noise, but there's not. You can use either. And then uh, I would run that into a delay line, uh, which is an analog bucket brigade. Uh, the one I use is CG1022, made by uh, Christian Gunter. Uh, it's a specialist um, module that specializes in very short delay lines. And it has an input that will allow you to control the delay line with um, volts per octave. So it's kind of tuned to respond in, in pitch. The volts per octave has to be inverted, scaled and things like that to make it in tune. And so that's already built into the module, which saves you a lot of time. And then I sometimes use the bandpass filter or sometimes the low-pass filter on my Macbeth semi-modular, but you can use any decent bandpass or, or any decent low-pass. Bandpass and low-pass have different effects. Uh, you can use them for different parts of the sound. So, for example, if I was in, trying to imitate whistle tones in a flute, which is the tones that you get from the very edge of the, blowing on the very edge of the embouchure, um, I would use a bandpass filter for that. Or if I was trying to do um, overblowing in a brass instrument, I'd use a bandpass filter for that. Um, but if I was trying to do uh, a bowed violin or something like that, I'd use a low pass. It has different effects. But that's, yeah, that's basically it. In the history of synthesizers, particularly in the early days, there was always this drive to make synthesizers and their patches sound like acoustic instruments so in the early synthesizers there was always you know whenever they had presets they were violin string oboe trumpet and they never sounded anything like it and then here we have this technology which is, is able to really accurately recreate the the sonic complexity of an acoustic uh, instrument but is that really what you want to use physical modeling for or are you looking to create something that has the essence of something that's rooted in authenticity but also maybe is something that could not happen in the, the physical world for example mixing you know mixing uh, a, a string with uh, a resonance chamber or, or vice versa or a reed with a you know the resonance kind of chamber of a, of a violin maybe yeah exactly that um, so um, when i'm building a model the first thing i do is i try and recreate as ac accurately as i can a particular physical configuration like a flute or a trumpet or a you know whatever it is uh, somebody bashing on a metal trash can or whatever it happens to be and um, because that's a test of whether your model works if you see what i mean if you can get it to sound close to the to what it's supposed to be you know you've got the you know the relationship between the, the modules you're using and the physics of the instrument that you're trying to reproduce right so the first thing i do is i try and get it to be as naturalistic as possible and the second thing i do is then mess that up as much as i can <laughs> because <laughs> because what interests me most about physical models is that it has 
the expressiveness and sort of the liveliness of an acoustic sound, but it offers the possibility of doing things which are not possible in the real world. So when I was studying orchestration, I did a lot of work with what are called extended techniques on instruments, so playing instruments in wacky ways to get unusual sounds out of them, multiphonic sounds of wind instruments, things like that. So I was always drawn to pushing instruments beyond their comfort zone. And, and that's exactly what physical modeling allows me to do. So I can take, there's an example on my SoundCloud with, where I've got an instrument called a Clary Flupet. Uh, and, and what that is, is um, if I remember all the bits correctly, it's, um, uh, it's a clarinet mouthpiece with the body of a flute and the bell of a trumpet. Um, and, and so the, what I did was I had a trumpet model, a uh, flute model, and a clarinet model, and I stole bits from each of them and, and kind of bolted them together in a, in a Frankenstein model. Because there's something about physical modelling which tweaks your brain and it falls into the category in your brain which your brain labels as acoustic. And somehow it, it, there's something in the sound which does that. But also if, if you uh, create an instrument which your brain doesn't recognise, then you get a kind of a... A cognitive dissonance where your brain says this is acoustic but it's not and that's what that's really what i'm after um it's it's sometimes referred to as the uncanny valley you know this is something that comes from robotics where you recognize something as being familiar but there's also something uncomfortable about it and um, so it's close to the familiar but not quite and that that aspect of of uh, strangeness i guess you would call it um is is an area i like to explore musically You say you you took the kind of the three elements of a clarinet, a flute, and a trumpet, and so you created you know these three models and then stole bits from each. When you say you stole bits from each, what are you actually doing? Are you still creating this this model on a single setup, and that you're just adjusting some of the parameters uh, on some of the elements within that that setup? to match those that you used on the flute, those that you used on the clarinet, and those that you used on the trumpet? Uh, not quite, no, it's more like it's more like a modular approach. So, so what you would do in the software, if I was trying to make a model of a, a clarinet, for example, I would model the read behavior separately from the, from the body of the instrument, and then I, would, I model the tone holes and uh, the bell shape uh, and uh, clarinet has uh, is a sealed tube at one end which does weird things to the harmonics so you know there are various things that i would model separately so and then and then i fit take the output of the read and feed it into the input of the tube etc etc and so you can think of it as a modular approach to programming so once i have that then i've got all these components which i can then rearrange so i can steal the read out of the clarinet you know copy and paste it into the onto the flute you know body instead of the flute on for sure which I can ditch that bit and, and, and that's how you combine the various things. Um, one further extension to that is you know if you're trying to imitate a resonant body like the body of a guitar or the body of a violin or a piano or something like that 
I, I sort of extended the physical modeling technique with with um, uh, with delay lines, and I used convolution um, to to model the resonant body part because that seemed to be the easiest and most realistic way. That's a bit of a non-standard addition to a traditional physical model, but once I worked out how to do uh, convolution without any delay, without any latency, then uh, then I started to use that as a, as a method to do that. So if you if you have a a convolution element to your models, um, you can take a different impulse and change the body. So you can have you can have a carpus strong string and feed that into a resonator, which is you know, a, a sample or an impulse response of somebody kicking a trash can. And then you, you end up with something which is like a string stretched across the top of a trash can. And so one of my hybrid models is uh, a pizzicato violin um, uh, with the string stretched across a gong. So you get a hybrid of a gong. And a, so instead of having a violin body, it has a gong as a body for the violin, if you see what I mean. Uh, and that produces a very interesting sound. You said that um, the, the the type of physical modeling that you are practicing there um is uh correct me if i'm wrong is it waveguide yeah that's right yeah so there are other methods what what are they and do you use them and if not why not um well <clears throat> there's an extension of waveguide called banded waveguide uh which was uh that term was coined by a guy called perry cook uh, and i've used that quite a bit um and that is a halfway house between waveguide which is a classical physical modeling technique, and modal synthesis or modal modeling, which is another approach to, to physical modeling. Um, uh, so I've dipped my toe in the water of modal modeling, but it, that requires a lot of a lot of components to do it, and so it's only still really only possible to do that in the computer. Um, so I, I use that sometimes. Some of my software uses that. Um, and then there is a third kind, which I call brute force, uh, the brute force approach, which is really um, finite difference equations. It, it's an entirely mathematical approach. It tries to describe the physics of the components of the instrument in terms of equations. And it feeds, it feeds a value into the equation, and then out the other end of the equation comes a value which represents the sound. Um, that is... Um, serious white coat um, um, scientist job and uh, I don't usually bother with that firstly because until fairly recently it wasn't possible to do it in real time the number crunching was just too much uh, but if people are interested in that aspect you can get very good results with that there's a guy up in Edinburgh called Stefan Bilbao uh, he's got some interesting stuff up on his website there he's probably the expert in the UK at that kind of stuff um, but but it's it's slow and painstaking it can produce very high quality results, but it's, you know, you need several lifetimes to, <laughs> to really do more than a couple of models in that. Physical modeling seemed to emerge, certainly in the commercial world, um, in the early mid 90s, as you said before, with, with Yamaha and their VL and VP instruments. 
and then slightly later with Korg and their multi-oscillator synthesis system, which uh, manifested in the Korg Prophecy and the Z1 a little bit later on. And then all of a sudden, physical modeling seemed to kind of drop off everyone's radar, and it all went to analog modeling, modeling uh, vir you know, virtually the, the, the electronics of an analog synthesizer, which I think, you know, everybody jumped on and is still very popular today. Why do you think physical modeling disappeared so kind of rapidly from the commercial market and it's now only just starting to see a little resurgence in terms of there are you know there, there are some software instruments now that do some really excellent uh, physical modeling of stringed instruments and percussive instruments but it's it seems to have kind of gone away for a very long time and I just wondered if you had any thoughts on on why it didn't really gain any traction like all other methods of synthesis seem to do? I think there were two main reasons. Um, firstly, it was such an unusual way of doing things for, for musicians, even musicians who are familiar with analog synthesis and FM synthesis. It's, uh, you know, you can probably remember yourself the, the kind of shock of the new when, when the DXF came along and people just, I mean, it basically... I mean, I used to earn a living for a while programming DX7s because I, I was the only person who'd read John Channing's paper on it and, uh, and, and, and could understand how the thing worked. Everyone else was just reduced to pushing the buttons for the presets and twiddling knobs at random. But it, it had a sort of novelty factor, which you know, people liked at the time. But I think physical modeling suffered from that. It was, it was a completely alien way of doing things, you know, no oscillators. You know, even the DX7 had oscillators. How do you make a sound if you've got no oscillators? You know, from the from the conventional synthesis point of view, and also you know, the information on how it works and things like that was buried in papers full of electrical engineering equations. So it was even more impenetrable than John Channing's stuff on FM. Um, you know, for the average musician, one of the first people who really extended waveguide synthesis beyond Carpus Strong was a guy called Julius Smith, and he's got enormous amounts of information up online which is incredibly detailed and it's got amazing stuff in it but you need an electrical engineering degree because he basically doesn't use words he only speaks in equations i mean almost literally you'll get three pages of equations and one paragraph explaining something about it you know so when you know when i first looked at that i was lost and it took me a long time to really understand that and I think a lot of people just didn't have the patience or the interest. Uh, and then the second thing I think which, which stopped it catching on was the fact that Julius Smith then licensed all of that stuff to Yamaha. So Yamaha owned, pretty much owned the rights to physical modeling entirely. Um, nobody else could use it because Yamaha had the rights. So they launched this incredibly expensive VR1, um, which nobody could afford, thinking that they got the next DX7. They overpriced it by a long way. And uh, the unfamiliarity and the ridiculous price just put people off. And so they just sat on the patent for years and years and years. I mean, Korg tried to find their way around it. They did to a certain extent, but they could only go so far because otherwise they'd infringe Yamaha's patent. So it's only recently that that patent has expired um, and people are able to do it legally. Do you think sampling had anything to do with it? Because around the time that physical modeling started to kind of disappear from people's uh, view, sampling was becoming much more proficient. Uh, we had more storage space, more processing power, um, and multi-sampling of you know, acoustic instruments was becoming infinitely more complex with round robins and all that kind of stuff. And we could fit that into... Uh, a decent sized instrument a well-priced instrument 
And so for authenticity, instead of going for a physically modelled string or physically modelled woodwind, we had samples. Do you think that might have had something to do with it? Possibly for some people. Um, I mean, personally, I'm not looking to, you know, primarily for realism from physical modelling. I'm looking for strangeness. But um, uh, for some people, I, I think perhaps it might have been marketed like that. Um, uh, but I think, you know, anybody who put a VL1 side by side with whatever Akai sampler was available at that time, in terms of expressive performance, the VL would, would absolutely wipe the floor with it. And, and But in terms of realism, if you just press one note, the sample is more real. But if you keep pressing that note, it immediately becomes less real, as you as you well know. And so the solutions to that, like you say, round robin, multi-velocity multi sampling and all that kind of stuff, came a bit later when there was faster processes and more memory. So if anybody had put the things side by side at the time, I think they would have realised the physical modelling offered in terms of performance, a completely different world. It's not just about the, the realism of the sound when you press one key, it's about the realism of the performance. And and physical modelling gets you much closer to the performance. A physical modelled instrument is not a single sound, it's a, a set of related behaviours which produce sounds that belong to a, a recognisable family. And a sample is not that, a sample is just a sound. That's the best description I've heard. And I've, I've always kind of tried to figure what that, that description is. And you've just kind of nailed it there with that. Do you see now that the patents have, have expired and more and more people are exploring it? What do you see uh, now as the future for, for physical modelling? Is it going to carry on being something that is done by the likes of yourself? Or do you see it being adopted more widely in, in, in the near future? I think it's 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 going off in two different directions. I think there are people like me who are in, interested in the experimental aspect of it and pushing it beyond just reproducing an instrument. And then there are some people who have been working away on one or two very specific models, trying to push the realism, you know, absolutely as far as it can get. So, you know, there are now a couple of very good um, physical models that approach you know, the limits of realism. So I'm thinking of the SWAM instruments, which are, which are really very, very good. Um, and uh, Expressive E do some very good string physical models, solo strings. Um, and uh, there's the ModArt Piano Tech, which is a very good piano. You know, so these are people who have been working, you know, the ModArt people have been working on that piano model for like 20 years or something like that, gradually refining it bit by bit, using the extra computing power as it goes along. And so... Those people are, you know, uh, particularly the SWAM instruments, they've got to a level now where it's pretty much indistinguishable from the real thing unless you really listen carefully. You know, the playing techniques are great. But from my point of view, they're not quite what I want because it's a commercial piece of software and the parameters that you're allowed to tweak are limited. They only give you certain parameters which they think might be useful and they limit the range of those parameters to realistic behaviours. You know, and actually I want to push it beyond where it starts to fall apart. Um, and so the thing with a physical model is actually, a physical model is quite an unstable thing, as an acoustic instrument is. You know, the physical shape of a musical instrument has been refined over 300 years or whatever um, to produce a nice, clean musical tone. But you don't have to change the physical instrument much and it just makes a squeaking noise or whatever, you know. Yeah, I mean, anyone who's taken a saxophone mouthpiece out and just blown through that, you know what I mean? Um, 
So uh, physical models are like that. So the people who make the commercial stuff, they don't like you to have too much control because it's easy to get into a situation where it doesn't make any sound at all or it just croaks. <laughs> um, so they limit what you can do. And so some of the most interesting sounds right on the edge of not doing anything at all, you can't get to. And then there are other people who have tried to make systems like uh, Tasman and things like that, which are sort of physical modeling playgrounds where you can mess around with modules, which give you a bit more access to the, uh, the outer limits, shall we say. So I think it's going in two different directions, realism, prepackaged, and more, expre more expressive semi-modular approaches for people who know a bit more about it. I mean, there's some nice models available from Reactor. You can learn a lot about modeling by taking apart other people's Reactor models. The, sorry, this, I should just mention while I, while I remember it, there's a Dutch guy called Harm Visser. Uh, he's done uh, about 30 physical models for Reactor. You can learn an awful lot about more advanced modeling by taking apart his, his models in Reactor because you can see exactly what's connected to what and what is used. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for reverse engineering of, of other people's work to, yeah. to find so out. Certainly exactly easier to do that than it is to read Julia Smith's electrical <laughs> yeah, <quite>. equations. <laughs> the other thing you mentioned about um, your love of, of physical modeled instruments is their expression. And therefore, the tools to allow you to convey that expression uh, go beyond the traditional you know, piano style Western keyboard and start going into, you know, ribbon controllers or wind controllers or, you know, other things. But do you use anything specific in that regard? And do you have a particular favorite method or is it, um, how do you control your physical models? Uh, mainly for the keyboard. Um, I mean, I, what I try and do is, I, there are lots of parameters to control in a physical model. Um, but quite often you can group those parameters together so that they, you know, when it gets gets louder, several different things increase or, or one thing increases and the other thing decreases at the same time or whatever, you know. You can group an awful lot. So if you've got a keyboard with aftertouch velocity, a couple of um, uh, modulation wheels, um, you can get a pretty expressive performance. And, you know, because I'm working mostly with the hardware these days, um, you know, it's the some obscure parameter that I want to tweak for a particular expressive purpose at a particular point in a particular piece of music. I can always reach up and grab the control on the module, you know. Um, so so um, between those things on the on the keyboard and, um, you know, grabbing the L control on the module, you can, I can do most of what I want. Um, but I do like the, uh, the look of the new Osmos keyboard from, from Expressive E. Um, which has physical modeling capability because that gives you a bit more control from the keyboard. That was going to be my next question. The uh, the advent of the MPE um, format, you know, the extended version of MIDI and MIDI 2.0 is giving musicians, electronic musicians, this you know hugely expanded resolution, which must really favor physical modeling and, and the things that you're doing. For certain things, yeah. Um, it, it's surprising what you can do with what we've already got, you know, um, MIDI and stuff like that. You know, it's people say it's low resolution and things like that. It is, but um, you can do a lot. You can do a lot with it. And although, you know, to suddenly expand the, the, de you know, the resolution of a control by a factor of a thousand or whatever MPE does, um, it's nice, but it's not absolutely essential. Um to get you know a good expressive performance behind uh, from it, I mean, 
As far as physical models and expression are concerned, I mean, my viewpoint on that is that the reason why physical modeling is, is so expressive is that you have a sense of effort behind the sound. Um, so, so a lot of synthetic sounds, they're kind of abstract and you don't have a model in your mind for how that sound was made. Um, whereas if you hear a wind instrument, you know somebody's blowing into that and you know when they're blowing hard into it because the wind instrument does certain things if you blow hard and you know, and the same with the string. If you hit it hard, it does certain things. It goes slightly out of tune. If you hit it harder, and and then it bounces back into tune, and all that kind of stuff. So, the sense that there's an effort behind something is incredibly important for a sense of expression. And and because of the way physical modelling works, is that effort is provided by the volume or the brightness of the excitation source, and and because that then pushes the system that it goes into the reverberating delay line then you get a sense of one thing pushing it either harder or less hard. And that gives a sense of effort. And that is a lot to do with expression because it gives a sense of, you know, somebody had to push that that hard to get it to do that kind of thing. So if somebody wants to get into physical modeling now, say they've listened to this podcast, and they, they think, right, I really want to do this. Um, they could go out and buy a range of um, Eurorack modules if they wanted, or they could use um, a piece of software. For example, you know, could you do both of those things together um, by employing, say, one of these um, virtual uh, modular units such as VCV Rack, where you can pretty much pick up any kind of module, noise generator, filter, uh, delay line, and could could you start experimenting in that realm just to kind of get the feel of it and see if it's something that, that works for you? Uh, you could. That would be a slightly perverse way of doing it, though, because if, you, if you're going to do the modular approach, the real reason for doing that is to get the analog sound quality. Otherwise, you're just making it more difficult for yourself. So if, you, if you're going to do it in software and you are a beginner, I would probably look at um, somebody else's carpenter's strong patch in Reactor because Reactor is a fairly easy it takes care of some of the software housekeeping for you, in, like polyphony and things like that, which you don't need to worry about. So I would probably, if you were starting off and you wanted to do it in software, I'd probably start with Reactor. If you wanted to do it in hardware, there's a very good tutorial on YouTube by Nicole from Befico, and she shows you how to set up a, a carpless strong thing with a set of modules, and she shows you how to use filters with it as well. So that's the first step of getting beyond a kind of a twangy, sort of metallic-y string thing, which Carpus Strong tends to produce. But but it's it, she explains it very well, and it, it's, it's a good way in for beginners. If you don't know what Carpus Strong is and you want to know how to do that with modules, she even tells you which modules work and which ones don't, you know, which kind of delay lines are set up to do that, because you need particular kinds of inputs on the delay line, and, and it has to go very, very short. So she tells you which ones work and she, that she's tried out and things like that. So... That would be a good starting place to do it with modules and to actually just dip your toe in it you only need about four or five modules so not not an extensive investment although i think the the, the trend with eurac is but once you've bought a few you you end up buying a few more and then a few more <laughs> david it's been absolutely fascinating uh, discussing this with you it's a subject that's um i've always had a, a, a an interest in but never really a full understanding and i think even in this short period of time you've helped me understand that and hopefully we've helped our listeners too and, and maybe encouraged a few to uh, dip their toe into the the waters david thank you ever so much for your time today it's been a, an absolute pleasure 
Thank you for listening, and be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode, where you will find further information along with web links and details of all the other episodes. Before you go, make sure you visit the Sound on Sound podcast page at soundonsound.com forward slash podcasts, where you can explore all the other great content playing across the other channels. I'm Rob Puricelli, and this has been a failed Muso production for Sound on Sound.